We're looking at Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he speaks truth in a world that oftentimes speaks lies and untruths. He's our priest, meaning he identifies with our weakness and our sin and intercedes before the Father. This morning, we're going to look at him as king, long-expected king, out of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Also, in our church app, uh, there is a sermon listening guide that has the scripture printed at the top of that as well. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Every year, I teach our fellowship program, which is a program designed to help believers live out the implications of the gospel at home, in the workplace, more faithfully. And every spring, we get towards the end of the course, we read through a leadership book. And I always ask the participants to give me experiences that they've had with leadership, whether it be good or bad. And it's always some mix of encouragement, and discouragement. The discouragement is, is often deeply saddening as I hear stories of the effects of bad and toxic leadership. And you may be right now personally going through a time where you're underneath some leadership that is not very good. Certainly as a culture, we watch failed leadership one after another, whether it's in the corporate world or whether it's in the church, that becomes so commonplace. And if you've had enough bad experiences with leadership, you can get to the point where you say, I don't know that I can ever trust a human leader again. There is a human leader that is 100% trustworthy, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, I emphasize that because oftentimes we think of Christ's humanity as only the, the 33 or so years that he walked on this earth with a body. But Christ still has a body today in an unseen realm. 
and he will have a body for eternity. He's 100% man and 100% God. He is the human leader. He is the king that your heart longs for, whether you realize it or not. The question is why? Why do you long for Christ as your king? Why do you need Christ as your king? And to answer this, we're gonna look at the darkness of human leadership. We're gonna look at the light of Christ's leadership. First, the darkness of human leadership. Human leadership is a good thing. God ordains it, God works through it. But because of sin, there's a dark side to human leadership. And we see this in 1 Samuel chapter eight. Now let me set the context for that chapter. God has rescued his people out of Egypt, out of awful slavery. He brought brought them through 40 years in the wilderness. Finally, to get them to the promised land, and Joshua was their leader who took them into the promised land and who would lead the conquest of the land. But the people rebelled. They were sinful. They worshiped false gods. And so Joshua eventually died, and God raised up judges. And the judges were to save God's people out of the hands of those who were trying to plunder them and to enslave them. And this began a cycle in Israel's history. And here's what the cycle looked like. God's people would sin. They would cry out for help. God would send a judge to save them. And then they would sin again. They'd cry out for help. God would send another judge to save them. And this happened over and over until there was a series of really bad judges. They perverted justice. They took bribes. And God's people said, enough. We're sick of this leadership. And they came to Samuel and they said, Samuel, we need a king. Like all the other nations around us, they looked around and they saw these nations that seemed to be flourishing and they went, they have kings. We don't, we need a king. So God said to Samuel, go ahead and give him a king. Even though they had rejected God as their king, go ahead and give him a king, but I want you to warn them how these kings are going to treat them. And the warning that Samuel gives is found in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. I'm not going to read the entire warning, but I'm going to read the phrase that repeats over and over and over in those verses. Verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and your female servants. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks. You see the pattern there? Take, take, take. That is the dark nature of human leadership. And Samuel's prophecy would come true. How did the reign of the first three kings of Israel end? We'll start with Saul, their first king. Towards the end of Saul's reign, he began to take the best sheep, the best oxen, the best animals from the Amalekites that they had plundered. And God had said, I don't want you to take that stuff. 
I want you to get rid of it. I don't want you to take it. But Saul saw all of this and decided to take, right, for personal gain. He was a taker, and he instilled towards the end of his reign a culture of taking. Move on to the second king of Israel's history, David. Towards the end of David's reign, what began the downfall of his reign? When he took Bathsheba, Uriah's husband. Bathsheba belonged to Uriah. David took her while Uriah was out on the front lines fighting the battle for David. So David got to a place where he was taking. And then you get to the third king of Israel's history, Solomon. Towards the end of his reign, what did he do? He began taking all kinds of foreign women for his own pleasure, even though God had commanded him not to do that. So Solomon became a taker, and this became the pattern of Israel's kings. They were takers, they were consumers, and that is the dark side, the dark nature of human leadership, is that it is a, it is a, a leadership of taking. Now, if that's the nature of it, then what's the result of it? Verses 1 to 2 of Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah speaks of a time of gloom, a time of anguish, a time of darkness, and he mentions these two lands, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, what were those lands? Well, those were the northern lands in the first parts of the promised land to fall to the kingdom of Assyria. King of Assyria came in and exiled God's people out of those lands. Now, here's the irony of that. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's people say, we want a king. Like all those other nations, we envy those other nations. We envy those kings. We want those kings. So God gave them kings that took, and then ultimately the kings of the other nations, the ones they envied, took them. And what we see is a principle here that is, operates in, in every human heart and operates in our world, that when you reject God as king and you set someone else up to be king over you, that king will take and will take. What you think is going to bring life when you set that king up over your life. We all long to be led. We all long for a king. But when you reject God and you put someone else in that place, you find that what you thought was gonna bring life begins to actually steal life and take life from you. A frantic 911 call brought police to a home. This woman had called 911 was frantic, was in trouble, was asking for help. By the time the police got there, they found her perished in her kitchen with a trail of blood into another room. And they walked into the other room and there was a dying, large dying boa constrictor in the other room. It was her pet and had it for many years, like we all do with pets. They are to be companions, bring help, joy, whatever. You know, that's why we have pets. Well, she had this pet and she was in the kitchen cooking and she let it wrap around her body and it began to constrict. And she ended up perishing. 
Now, that's a, that's a graphic picture. I understand that. But it's a vivid picture. It's a very vivid picture of what happens when we set kings up over our lives and reject God as king. What we think will give us life, and so we surround our lives with them, actually begin to steal, begin to take life from us. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller tells a story of this woman named Mary. She was an accomplished musician, but she also had mental illness, and she had been in and out of psychiatric institutions. So she came to Tim, and as her pastor, she gave him permission to talk to her therapist, and this is what her therapist said. Mary virtually worships her parents' approval of her, and they always wanted her to be a world-class artist. She's quite good, but she's never reached the top of her profession, and she cannot live with the idea that she has disappointed her parents. She told herself, if I cannot be a well-known violinist, I have let down my parents and my life is a failure. And do you see what's happening there? Mary's parents had set up Mary to be their king. And then if she failed to be a world-class artist so that her success couldn't be their own, then they found their lives worthless. And Mary, their daughter, had set her, her parents had set them up to be king over her life. And if she couldn't get their approval, then she felt like her life was worthless. Another graphic example, that's a picture of two ticks sucking blood from one another until they're empty. Now, now, you can set up any human relationship where both parties are looking to each other to be king, to lead them, ultimately to lead them. And what happens is it just you begin stealing and taking life from each other. That's what happens when we reject God as king. When we set someone else up to be king over us. The question is, who in your life is functioning as king? Or maybe another way to ask the question, who is functionally leading you on a day-to-day -day basis? Now, this isn't to, again, downplay human leadership. There's a place for human leadership, absolutely. But what I'm talking about here is at a heart level, the ultimate setting someone else up to be king. There's a myriad of answers here. Boss, employee, boyfriend, girlfriend, child, parent, coach, teacher, politician. Every functional king apart from Christ, because of sin and the darkness of human leadership, will take from you to some degree. Even, even good human leaders, right? There are very good human leaders who are fallen and not perfect. And because of that, there is some degree, even if it's minor to major, there's some degree of a culture of taking, of taking from you. There's only one who doesn't take. That brings us to our second point. Why do you need Christ as your king? We've looked at the darkness of human leadership. Let's look at the, the light of Christ's leadership. 
What is the nature of Christ's leadership? Look at verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Do you see the contrast here between the darkness of human leadership and the light of Christ's leadership? Remember back to 1 Samuel 8? What was Samuel's prophecy to the people when they said, we need a king? We've rejected God as our king. Give us a human king. What did Samuel say to him? Hey, I'm gonna give you a king, but let me warn you. These kings are gonna take from you. They're gonna take your sons. What do we read here in verse six of Isaiah nine? God doesn't take from you. He doesn't take your sons. He gives you his own son, Jesus Christ. That's the light of God's leadership, of Christ's leadership. He gives you a son. He doesn't take from you. He gives to you. Jesus Christ, the king, became a baby, stepped into darkness, didn't fix the problem from afar, entered your world, and didn't take something from you as payment before he gave you the blessing. Jesus didn't take from you as payment to earn the gift, the blessing he wanted to give you, which was his own life. And that's how all the other gods and the religions of Isaiah's day worked. You, you gave to those gods. Those gods took from you. They took payment before they'd ever give you any kind of blessing. We see this in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah, God's prophet, calls the prophets of Baal to a challenge. They were to prepare a bowl, cut it in pieces, put it on a stack of wood, and then each were to call the prophets of Baal, were to call to Baal, fire to come down, and, and Elijah was to call to God and have fire come down. And, and whoever's God sent fire, that was who was God. And it says that the prophets of Baal called from morning till noon, for, for Baal to answer, and he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't send fire. And so then, after they had called to him and he wouldn't answer, they began cutting themselves until it says that the blood was gushing from them to get Baal to answer, and he still didn't answer. That's what false gods do. They demand your blood. I mean, not physically, but they demand your life. Think about Mary, this violinist that I told you about. Think about her God of approval, specifically her parents' approval, but think about that God of approval and what it demanded from Mary. It was taking from her to the point where she felt guilty and depressed enough to die. Stealing from her life. That's what false gods do. They take, they demand life from you. Not so with God. He doesn't demand your blood. He freely gives his own. He doesn't demand your blood. He gives his own in the person of Jesus Christ who stepped into human history, took on your flesh, walked into your mess, and let his blood flow on the cross. Human leadership is self-seeking. The dark side of human leadership is self-seeking. Christ's leadership is self-sacrificing. He gives. Now, if that's the nature of Christ's leadership, 
that he gives, he doesn't take. Then what's the result of it? What's the result of it? Verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Two words here, peace and justice. Different words, they get at the same concept. The word for peace is shalom. It's that Old Testament Hebrew word that means emotional, spiritual, psychological, physical flourishing. It means wholeness and completeness and flourishing on every conceivable level. That's peace. Justice and righteousness mean rightness. That means the world being made right. The world being made right. Now, I want you to think about those two words, peace and justice. The dark side of human leadership produces just the opposite, doesn't it? Right, the dark side of human leadership produces chaos, right, not peace. It produces injustice, not justice. But the light of Christ's leadership produces peace, produces justice. And that's something we all dream about, don't we? Don't we dream about the day when peace and justice will reign in our world, when the world will be one, when societies will function fairly and efficiently, when there will be no more mental illness, no more addiction, no more homelessness, no more shootings, no more death. We all long for that day. We dream for a day when the world will be made right. We long for justice. We even strive for it in our world, but oftentimes fail to achieve it, right? fail to find justice. And even though there's failed attempts at justice, we still long for it. We still long for that justice, and we long for that peace. N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Christian, says this. Christians believe this, meaning that dreaming that one day all broken things will be set right. Christians believe this is so because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echo of a voice which calls us to live with a dream for justice. And followers of Christ believe that in Jesus, that voice became human and did what had to be done to bring it about. Now, you may say, well, Christ became human about 2,000 years ago. Where's the peace and justice? I mean, where's the peace and justice? It's, it's been 2,000 years. Those who were receiving Isaiah's prophecy could have said the same thing because they would go into exile, they would be raided, they, they would experience chaos, they would experience injustice. The hope of Isaiah 9 is a sure hope, but it's not always a seen hope. The last verse of chapter 8, which sets up the beginning of chapter 9, Last verse of chapter eight, verse 22 says, 
and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Verse one of chapter nine. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, verse one of chapter nine follows verse 22 of chapter eight, not because it's gonna immediately happen, but because it's immediately apparent to the eye of faith. Not because it's gonna immediately happen, but because it's immediately apparent to the eye of faith. This hope, light piercing darkness, right? light coming in and piercing into the darkness, this hope is so sure that verses one to four of Isaiah nine are in the past tense. That's a way in Hebrew to say, it's accomplished. It's so sure it's accomplished. It's just we can't see it with the physical eye yet. We can only see it through the eye of faith. But it's that sure. It's that accomplished. Alec Motyer gives great insight into this chapter in Isaiah when he says this. We have to decide what reading of our experiences we are going to live by. The darkness and distress are real, but they are neither the only reality nor the fundamental reality. In any given situation, we can either sink into despair or rise to faith and hope. Let me take you back last week to that illustration about flying in an airplane early in the morning. Imagine you're on a plane, very early morning hours, you're in a westward facing seat on the plane, you look out your window, you see nothing but darkness. Across the aisle, there's someone sitting at an, in an eastward facing window seat. They raise their window shade up and the sunlight pierces through the window across your face. One side of the airplane cabin is in the light, one side is still in the shadows of darkness. From where you sit in your westward facing window seat, there are two realities. Two realities. One of the realities you see when you look out your window and it's dark. The other reality you see is when you look across the aisle and you see the sun coming through the window. Very different realities, but two realities. Different, but two very real realities. Do you read your experiences? I want you to think about this. The experiences of your life, do you read your experiences only through the dark window? Do you read your experiences only through the light window? Or do you read your experiences through both the dark and the light window? I've shared this before, but Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was captured by the enemy in the Vietnam War, was tortured over 20 times in his eight-year imprisonment in the prison of war camp. 
He was the highest ranking military officer in this prisoner of war camp. So he worked to create conditions that would hopefully get most of the soldiers to survive and get out. He eventually made his way out. He was freed. He he came out. He survived this prisoner of war camp for eight years. And he was asked once he was freed, he said, who didn't, the interviewer said, who didn't make it out? And he said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. And the interviewer said, the the optimists? I I don't get it. What do you mean? He said, the optimists, those were the ones that said we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And then Easter would come and Easter would go. And they'd say, well, we're going to be out by Thanksgiving. And then Thanksgiving would come and Thanksgiving would go. And they were back at Christmas again. He said they died of a broken heart. And then he went on to say this. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. As your king... Christ's leadership over you keeps you from falling into one of two ditches. The ditch of unfounded optimism, which comes from refusing to look at the darkness, or the ditch of debilitating despair, which comes from getting stuck only looking at the darkness. Christ's leadership frees you from both of those ditches because both of those unfounded optimism and debilitating despair produce gloom and anguish. I want you to think about the people you lead, starting with yourself, that we all lead our own hearts. Spirit lives in us, but we are responsible for submitting to the Spirit in our own leadership of our own hearts. But I want you to think about who you lead. Everyone leads, right? Everyone influences. Everybody does. Whether it's parent to child, child to fellow classmates, teacher to students, coach to players, boss to employees, shift manager to workers. Which ditch, unfounded optimism or debilitating despair, do you tend to fall into and drag people with you? Apart from Christ, you will fall into one of those two ditches. But in Christ, when you're submitted to Christ's leadership over you, he keeps both realities before you, the brutal darkness and the amazing light. And in doing so, produces in you this indestructible joy because you know because he dwells in you, that the light will overtake the darkness. It has by faith and it will in reality when he returns. That's why you need Christ to be your king. Let's pray. Father, we're in this season of Advent.
and we look around our world, we look around our country, our city, and, and we see all sorts of pockets of darkness. We see the darkness in our own hearts. For some of us coming through Advent, we've had just real darkness and chaos. Father, in this season of Advent, for those of us that are stuck on the darkness, would you lift our eyes to see the light of Christ that has come, that is coming, that will come. And that justice and peace that we all long for, it's already been accomplished by Christ's death and resurrection, that it is coming. Would you help us to read our experiences through that lens, through the lens of the realness of the darkness, but the realness of the light that is coming and overtaking the darkness? Father, as we sing, as we worship, whoever is functioning as our king, whoever is functionally leading us outside of you, would you gently by your spirit convict us as we close in worship? And would we lift our hands, Jesus, to you as our only king? And you are an amazing king. You give. You don't take. You give and you gave all the way until it cost you your life. Would we be receivers of the gift of your life? And would you fill us with joy? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.